Hey everyone, and welcome back to Crisis of Crime. I'm your host, Rachel Means, and I'm a criminologist. Thank you for joining me for my weekly podcast where I discuss topics in criminology. One of my first episodes was criminological theories with examples from movie and TV, and today I'm happy to bring you part two. In this episode, I'll be going over nine more criminological theories. The first five are popular theories, and the last four are more controversial. I'll be talking a lot about radical criminology in the latter part of this episode, and I want to thank Twitter user atnanthiswar187 for requesting this topic. This podcast will also be available as a YouTube video. Check out the Crisis of Crime YouTube page for part one and part two of criminological theories with examples from movies and TV. Let's go ahead and dive in. Environmental criminology says that you need two factors for a crime to occur, a person who is ready to offend and an opportunity to commit a crime. We understand that we will always have someone who is ready to offend, but the factor that can be changed is the presence or absence of the opportunity to offend. Therefore, if we manipulate these opportunities, we can decrease the number of crimes that are happening. These opportunities could be something like a burglar breaking into a home that doesn't have an alarm system and when nobody is home. If we can manipulate those factors, such as installing a home security system or hiring a house sitter, then we can decrease the chances that a crime will occur. Routine Activities Theory was published in 1979 by Cohen and Felsen and is a sub-theory of environmental criminology, but it takes it a step further. Like I said, in environmental criminology, we need someone who's ready to offend and an opportunity to offend. According to routine activities theory, we need motivated offenders, suitable targets, and the lack of capable guardianship. This theory focuses around our routine activities. If we spend more time away from home, such as going to a bar or being out in public, we are at a higher risk of encountering a motivated offender where there is lack of capable guardianship. Essentially, you are safer in your home than you are out in public. Routine activities theory focuses on the environment rather than the individual when it comes to offending. This theory came about after researchers noticed a change in the culture in the United States post-World War II. The percentage of women going to work and school dramatically increased, putting more people out in public to possibly become a suitable target. This also left houses empty for a majority part of the day, making it a suitable target for burglary. A great example of routine activities theory from a movie would be in The Fast and the Furious. In the movie, we see Dominic Toretto and his crew robbing semi-trucks carrying electronic equipment. They did so by using their expert and calculated driving skills to commandeer semi-trucks and drive them to undisclosed locations where they could steal the merchandise. They performed these robberies on deserted stretches of highway so there were no witnesses, and they would scan the police radio to ensure they wouldn't have any law enforcement present. They were motivated offenders who saw the semi-trucks carrying the electronic equipment as suitable targets, and because they were in a deserted area with no one else around, there was a lack of capable guardianship. According to routine activities theory, we could argue that if the highway had traffic cameras installed every few miles, Toretto's crew wouldn't have been able to get away with their robberies for as long as they did. In fact, at the end of the movie, 
We see a truck driver has decided to arm themselves because they are aware of the previous robberies of trucks carrying electronic equipment like he is doing. When the crew sees that the truck driver is armed, they no longer see him as a suitable target and instead begin working towards evacuating the scene. Rational Choice Theory was published in 1986 by Cornish and Clark, and they argue that individuals are making rational decisions on whether or not to engage in crime and what types of crime to engage in. In this theory, offenders will weigh the pros and cons of offending and come to a rational decision based on the information they can draw from, such as reliable sources, first-hand surveillance, and previous experiences. This theory is very similar to classical theory in that both suggest that the individuals are rational beings making a decision of whether or not to commit a crime. In rational choice theory, the potential offender is weighing out the pros and cons of committing a crime and making a decision from that. Meanwhile, in classical theory, offenders are only deterred from committing a crime if the punishment is swift, certain, and severe. Generally, offenders who are committing crimes according to the rational choice theory are taking a long time to decide whether or not to become involved with criminal activities and whether or not to commit a certain crime. Rational choice theory is particular in saying that potential offenders first need to make the decision to offend and then to commit a specific type of offense. If the offender wants to commit a burglary, whether or not they are going to do it depends on if the burglary will be of a commercial business or a residential home. Even then, if it's a residential home, is it a middle-class home, one in public housing, or a wealthy mansion? So it has to be very specific. I like to call offenders who commit crimes according to the rational choice theory planners because they are thinking about every detail of the potential crime. A great example of the rational choice theory from a movie would be in Ocean's Eleven. Danny Ocean has a master plan to rob three Las Vegas casinos, and he has thought through every scenario. He has determined exactly who needs to be on his team and what their jobs will entail. Each person is just as important as the next, and they all need to perform their jobs to a T to be able to pull off the heist. Danny and his crew are making rational choices based on reliable sources, first-hand surveillance, and their previous experiences to plan and execute this heist. The group has weighed the pros and cons of carrying out the heist and have decided that with all their planning and contingencies, the $150 million they will get in return is worth the risk. According to rational choice theory, we could argue that if Danny Ocean and his team hadn't meticulously planned out every step of the heist using rational logic, that at least one, if not all, members of Ocean's team would have decided not to go through with the heist because based on the information they had, they concluded that there was a low chance that they would succeed. Social learning theory was developed by Akers in 1985, and his aim was to build onto the theory of differential association published by Sutherland and Cressy in 1939. In 1966, Akers and Burgess had explained the idea of differential association reinforcement, which stated that an individual's behavior was shaped and conditioned by rewards and punishment and was subject to involuntary reflexes such as subconscious discrimination. Akers continued in 1985 by adding that social interactions were essentially an exchange of meaning and symbols. 
So we can see others' behavior, and then we can imagine ourselves in that same way. And this can lead to behaviors such as imitation. Social learning theory also takes into account an individual's morals based on beliefs such as religion and conventional values. Oftentimes, our morals tell us that crime is wrong and that we shouldn't offend. But when we interact with others, it may reshape our morals, so some crimes may be seen as immoral while others are acceptable. For example, someone may see it as immoral to smoke marijuana because it's illegal, but they don't have a problem with drinking alcohol under the legal age limit. A great example of social learning theory from a movie would be in Pirates of the Caribbean. We meet Will Turner, who is an honest and hardworking blacksmith. He is in love with Elizabeth Swan, the daughter of the governor. Will was found lost at sea when he was a boy, and it is rumored that he was the son of a pirate. Elizabeth had always had a fascination with pirates and being out on the open sea. When the town is attacked by Captain Barbosa and his pirates, Elizabeth goes on board to try to negotiate with them, being kidnapped in the process. Will teams up with Captain Jack Sparrow, a pirate who was previously marooned by Captain Barbosa, to go after Elizabeth and save her. In the beginning of the movie, Will wants nothing to do with pirates, and he certainly doesn't want to be one himself. He cares about following the laws and contributing to society. As the movie progresses, he spends more time with Captain Jack Sparrow and begins to see himself more as an outlaw, and eventually claims that he is a pirate. He learns that his father was the famous pirate, Bootstrap Bill Turner, and Will goes on to follow in his footsteps. According to social learning theory, we could argue that if Will had not chased after Elizabeth and wasn't in the company of Captain Jack Sparrow, that he would have never become a pirate. Social Bond Theory was published in 1969 by Hershey, and it's a sub-theory of control theory. Control theories in general state that individuals offend because their ties to conventional society have been broken. Hershey believed that previous theories such as the strain theory were flawed because those theories painted individuals as blank slates who were influenced by their environments. Instead, Hershey believed that individuals would naturally break the law. Instead of asking the question, why do people offend, social bond theory asked the question, why don't people offend? Essentially, what is stopping them? The answer, of course, is the control that society has over individuals. But when those bonds are broken, crimes will occur. Social bond theory mainly focuses on children becoming delinquents when their environments cause them to detach from society. This could be factors such as not having a strong relationship to their parents or to their school. Social bond theory states that these social bonds can strengthen and weaken throughout someone's life, depending on their bonds with society. It's important to note that as Hershey got older, he began to contradict the social bond theory. He teamed up with Godfredson, a fellow researcher, to publish A General Theory of Crime in 1990. The general theory of crime suggested that an individual's lack of self-control is what led them to offend. This is also known as self-control theory. So instead of crimes being caused by weakening bonds with society, self-control theory suggests that whether or not someone will bond with society is an internal factor that develops early in childhood and lasts throughout an individual's lifespan. Therefore, if someone is delinquent as a child, they will likely be an offending adult. A great example of the social bond theory from a movie would be from the movie Carrie. 
In the beginning of the movie, we see a young girl named Carrie White, who wants to fit in at school and gain approval from her mother. She is constantly bullied and teased at school, and her mother is a religious extremist who emotionally abuses her daily. Throughout the movie, Carrie realizes that she is a telekinetic, so she can move things with her mind. Carrie is invited to prom by a good-looking classmate as a way to apologize for all the bullying she has endured. But her bullies decide to use this opportunity to cause her more pain. They rig the prom king and queen election, so Carrie ends up being crowned prom queen. When accepting her crown, her bullies dump pig's blood all over her head. This causes Carrie to lose control. She completely detaches from society, and in a full outrage, she sets the school ablaze, destroying the school and killing or injuring everyone inside. She continues to wreak havoc on the town until she eventually dies from a stab wound inflicted by her mother. According to the social bond theory, we could argue that if Carrie had not suffered from the bullying at school, nor did she have an emotionally abusive mother at home, she would have not detached from society the way she did, causing the death and destruction throughout her town. And it likely would have been enough not to cause her to detach if she had an emotionally supportive mother at home to help her cope with the bullying at school, or if she had supportive friends at school to help her cope with her emotionally abusive mother. But because there was no outlet for her to cope with her stressors in her life, she detached from society completely. Modern evolutionary theory is one of the more controversial theories, and it suggests that certain characteristics within our society are likely there because of the reproductive success of our ancestors. And when it comes to evolution, the species that is better at passing along their genetic material is more likely to survive. Therefore, the modern evolutionary theory suggests that certain traits that cause specific behaviors are advantageous in terms of natural selection. Specifically, the traits that cause the behaviors of deception, cheating, and sexual aggression may have been favorable for natural selection. If we think about it in terms of animals, the more females a man can mate with each season increase the number of offspring he has to carry on his genes. Therefore, modern evolutionary theorists believe that certain traits may be favorable in men who are sexually aggressive to carry on their lineage. This would likely be an inherent behavior, not a rational choice someone is making. We might see this with men who are in committed relationships until their female partner becomes pregnant, and then they are no longer interested in the relationship. We also see this with men who are pushy when it comes to having sex, because on a primal level, the more women they can get to have sex with them, the higher their chances are of passing on their genes. These behaviors do not always have to do with finding sex partners. Child abuse, neglect, and infanticide, or the killing of an infant, can be side effects of having a primal instinct to push for your most viable offspring to survive, that is, your offspring that is most likely to continue producing offspring with your lineage. A great example of the modern evolutionary theory in a movie would be in the movie 300. We see King Leonidas and the Spartans as a strong and powerful faction. Everyone is beautiful, strong, and in perfect health. They are able to achieve this because they are attempting to achieve genetic superiority through infanticide. Each baby that is born in Sparta is inspected for any physical or mental deformities. If they are found to have one, they are killed. 
Additionally, as the boys in the community get older, they endure intensive physical testing to become men and warriors. We see a flashback of King Leonidas's life when he was sent to fight a wolf. If he survives and comes home, he can be a man. If the wolf kills him, then they will not have a weak warrior in their ranks. According to the modern evolutionary theory, because this community as a whole puts an emphasis on strength, power, and perfectionism, they will likely pass on those traits to cause those same behaviors in their children, continuing the cycle. The radical theory of criminology is our next controversial theory, and it is derived from Marxist ideas, and it suggests that laws are put in place by the powerful elite to benefit them, even if that means they are harmful to the general population. Radical criminologists believe that blaming the individual for a crime in the pursuit of punishing that person is ultimately about oppressing people, which is in the state's interest. Also, that putting the focus on the individual offenders takes attention away from the system that created the conditions that are conducive to crime, and therefore the government cannot be blamed. And finally, radical criminologists believe that other non-radical criminologists and those in the general public who focus on individual offenders are allowing the government and the wealthy elite to continue puppeteering because they fear retribution. Since the government and the wealthy elite are defining what classifies a crime and how severe each should be punished, we see that crimes that directly threaten the social, economic, and political order are often labeled as acts of terrorism. The radical theory of criminology also supports the idea that the entire American institution was built on a foundation of systematic oppression of people of color, specifically Black or African American people. This is why we still see oppression, segregation, and discrimination in our society today, and it's all regulated through dog whistle politics and unwritten laws. A great example of radical criminology from a movie would be in The Hunger Games. In the movie, we see the continent of Pan Am broken into 13 districts, and then the capital. Those who reside in the capital are wealthy elites and want for nothing. The Hunger Games is an annual event where two individuals from each district are placed in an arena where they must fight to the death. This is a form of entertainment for those who live in the capital. The districts themselves become increasingly impoverished with each number, meaning District 1 is still relatively wealthy compared to the capital, but the residents of District 12, such as the main character Katniss Everdeen, live in extreme poverty. The capital has placed peacekeepers in each district who are there to enforce the law and punish anyone who breaks it. The punishment often involves public floggings as a way to deter others from breaking the law or retaliating against the capital. The laws in each district are there to oppress the people and to benefit the wealthy elite living in the capital. A sub-theory of the radical theory of criminology is the radical theory of feminist criminology. Radical feminism puts the patriarchy at the center of the theory for why women offend. Radical feminists believe that the oppression of women leads to female offenders, and that the system itself is built to oppress and control women. For example, there are U.S. laws that are put in place to control women and what they can do with their bodies. We also see gender inequality and sentencing for women. 
Radical feminists also take note of the fact that the patriarchy is conducive to the physical and sexual abuse of women. Studies show that the majority of female offenders and delinquent girls have suffered from some form of physical or sexual abuse in their lifetime. If you want to learn more about the feminist theories of criminology, I suggest that you check out a previous episode of mine titled Gender, Crime, and the Problem with Prostitution. A great example of the radical feminist theory in a movie would be in Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise are two close friends living in Arkansas. They head out for a weekend vacation in the mountains, and on the way they stop at a tavern for a night of drinking and dancing. Thelma dances with a man who walks her outside and proceeds to try to rape her. Louise finds them and pulls a gun on the man, stopping him in the act, and then shoots him dead. Now Thelma and Louise are on the run from the police. Throughout the timeline of the movie, we see Thelma and Louise becoming more relaxed and not fitting into traditional female gender roles. They become outlaws. They rob a convenience store and they blow up a semi-truck. The defining event that set these women on the path of crime was the man who was attempting to rape Thelma. According to the radical theory of feminist criminology, we could argue that if that man had not tried to dominate and oppress Thelma by trying to rape her, these women would have never fallen into a life of crime. Our last theory for today is a second sub-theory of the radical theory of criminology, and it's the theory of African-American offending. The theory of African-American offending was published in 2011 by Univer and Gabadon, and it suggests that parents of Black or African-American children need to prepare their children to live in a society that systematically oppresses them. If you'll remember, radical criminologists assert that the government itself is built on the systematic oppression of people of color, specifically Black or African American people. And I want to be very clear. This is not a theory arguing that Black or African American people commit crimes more than any other race. Instead, similarly to the radical theory of feminist criminology, the theory of African American offending suggests that individuals commit crimes because they are being oppressed by society. And this theory specifically is saying that whether or not parents are preparing Black or African American children to live in a society that's oppressing them is the factor that influences criminality. It's also not lost on me that I am a white woman talking about the theory of African American offending. As a criminologist and as an educator, I feel it's important to discuss all theories of crime, this one included. The theory of African-American offending suggests that nearly every African-American has a similar worldview, being that at some point in their lives, they will encounter racial discrimination. It goes on to say that parents of Black or African-American children must racially socialize their children by teaching them three things, how to interact with other Black people, how to interact with other races, and how to cope with their minority status. Univer and Gabadon argue that if Black or African American children are not racially socialized, they will encounter three possible outcomes. First, if parents do not talk to their children about racial injustice, children will often be blindsided when they learn of their reality and will likely react in a way that has potentially harmful consequences, such as anger, hostility, defiance, depression, and weak social bonds. If you remember back to the social bond theory, Weak social bonds increase an individual's chances of offending. Second, 
If parents raise their Black or African-American children to mistrust white people and white-dominated institutions, such as the government and the criminal justice system, they will be more likely to perceive racial discrimination as an attack on them personally and will have less self-control. If you remember back to the self-control theory, low self-control increases an individual's chances of offending. Lastly, if parents of Black or African-American children talk to their children about racial injustice, but fail to give them strategies to cope with it, such as encouraging them to seek out social support, they will be more vulnerable to developing a sensitivity to the stigmas society places on them and, in turn, possibly succumbing to them, which in turn could increase their risk of offending. A great example of the theory of African-American offending in a movie would be in Boys in the Hood. The main character is Trey Stiles, a young boy who is going to live with his father after getting into some trouble at school. His dad wants to help Trey become a man by having him do chores and teaching him wise rules to being a good leader, such as always looking someone in the eye because it will make them respect you more. Two of Trey's best friends are a pair of brothers, Ricky and Darren, or Doughboy. Their mother, Mrs. Baker, tells Doughboy that he isn't ever going to amount to anything and that he's lazy. It's clear that she isn't an outlet for him to cope with the world he's living in as a young African-American boy. We see Doughboy getting into trouble for stealing when he's young, and he is in and out of juvenile detention for the rest of his youth. When he grows up, we see that he still has a tendency to offend. According to the theory of African-American offending, we could argue that if Mrs. Baker had been there as an outlet for Doughboy, for him to cope with his reality that he would have not been a delinquent who grew up to be an adult offender. Ricky, on the other hand, Doughboy's brother, is praised by their mother. Ricky is a tall, handsome, and smart young man with dreams of getting a scholarship to play football for a university. His mother supports him through his whole childhood and tells him to chase his dreams. This falls more under the modern evolutionary theory. We could say that Mrs. Baker was more invested in Ricky because subconsciously she thought that he was the better of her offspring to carry on her lineage. Alright folks, so that's all the theories I wanted to cover today. I want to know your thoughts. Do you agree with the radical theories that oppression can cause individuals to commit crimes? Let me know your thoughts on Twitter. You can find me at Crisis of Crime, or you can visit my website at crisisofcrime.com where you can send me a direct message. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting me through Patreon. If anyone wants to check out any of my sources for today's episode, they are listed in the description below. I hope everyone is doing well and staying healthy. And until next time, this has been Crisis of Crime.